you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Seymour Weitzman had joined us, and uh, Weitzman was a uh, gun buff. He had a sporting goods store at one time. He was very good at, with weapons, and he said it looked like a Mauser, and he walked over to Fritz, and Captain Fritz was holding the rifle up in the air, and I was standing next to Weitzman, who was standing next to Fritz, and we weren't any more than six or eight inches from the rifle and stamped right on the barrel of the rifle was 7.65 Mauser. And that's when Weitzman said it is a Mauser and pointed to the 7.65 Mauser stamp on the barrel. There's an intonation to that statement that it should mean something. Well, the shells we found came from a 6.5 Italian rifle. You mean those three the cartridges? The two don't relate. Three cartridges that were found at the southeast corner. In the southeast corner. Came from a 6.5 Italian carbine. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 92 of the Lone Gummin Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Clark, and with me today is my friend Carmine Savastano, author of the upcoming book. Two Princes and a King, and proprietor of the Neapolis Media Group. How you doing, Carmine? Welcome back. Thanks, Ralph. I'm doing pretty good. Glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. It's going to be a, a Neapolis couple of weeks here. So, <laughs> I think I got Chuck Chuck coming on next week, so that's oh, good. That's great. I'll definitely be tuned in. And uh, for everybody to find your stuff, where where is the best place to go real quick? Hopefully coming soon to yes, yes. As soon as I promise, as 
Awesome, awesome. Winter. <laughs> winter. <laughs> is that winter in Australia or winter in America? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's always winter somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, today I, I got Carmine on here, and we are going to be talking about uh, the weapons used to crucify Lee Harvey Oswald that day. The, of course, the Manlicker Carcano and the Smith & Wesson uh, 38 special pistol and we're going to start off talking about a little bit about the Dodd committee and now uh, Thomas Dodd was of course a senator he was uh, in charge of many senate subcommittees uh, a few of which uh, applied to the fair play for Cuba committee and the sale the interstate sale of mail order weapons and other stuff and uh, so, Carmine, let's kick it into Senator Dodd, and then we'll get into the rifle and, and the pistol. Okay. Uh, Dodd, basically, um, relevant to our conversation, I'd say the first time Dodd becomes uh, within the periphery of the JFK case is, you know, pre-assassinations in 1959. Uh, he was a member of the Senate subcommittee to investigate the administration of internal security laws uh, of the Judiciary Committee. So basically, he conducted fact-finding missions. Usually, he was a member. Sometimes he presided, uh, and that Congress was using to identify threats uh, to American internal security. So the committee, at one point in '59, accepted testimony from a name that most of us are familiar with, Pedro Luis Diaz Lanz. Oh yeah. And now uh, Lanz is the former chief of the Cuban Air Force, and later on became uh, his family were aligned. Uh, with anti-Batista groups prior to joining Castro. So uh, they eventually, once they joined Castro, Diaz Lance was later removed from his job when he refused to lead an invasion against the Dominican Republic because he saw that as expanding the power of the communists, which was against what he and his father believed. Yeah, I, th I believe he was uh, pegged, pegged by the National Enquirer uh, w one year uh, as being the assassin. <laughs> so. Yeah. Jim Fetzer had him hiding anywhere shooting. <laughs> <laughs> one, of his, one of his 15 assassins, a small like, army of assassins. Eight to ten shots fired, six kill teams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? People, yeah, people, it's kind of like the people who say it was an entire, it was an entire official group. That's impossible. It's too many people. It has to be a small compartmentalized group to get away with it. Otherwise, we would have discovered who it was by now. You can't have 50 people operating simultaneously beyond the considerations of just how impossible that would be just to get them to operate well simultaneously. Oh, I know. But I'm sure he has an excuse for everything. And, uh, they, you know, they had radios or whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, we're referring to the excellent, uh, well, I wouldn't call it an interview, <laughs> but I think a, a, a circus show would be a more better accurate description. <laughs> Of Chuck O'Chelly's show, uh, his big four-hour spectacular on American Freedom Radio this past Sunday evening, uh, starring Carmine and Chuck, and 
John Hankey and Jim Fetzer, and I would encourage everyone out there. I put a link up for uh, with the last episode I put up for everybody to go hear it. Go hear it, and you will see for yourself that given enough rope, people do hang themselves. <laughs> so definitely check it out. But anyway, back to Dodd. Back to Dodd. So, so yeah, so they interviewed Diaz Lanz. Uh, Diaz Lanz becomes an anti-Castro uh, refugee who associates with agency operations. You know, he used to, he tells him he used his pilot skills to aid Castro forces before he was confused into communism. You know, communists had infiltrated, named several officials, talks about what a ruthless dictator Castro was. And then he later associates with Sturgis and others. Uh, who and it's actually Sturgis that informs the CIA about Diaz Lance's plans. Nice. So yeah, there wasn't even any loyalty among the mercenaries and the exiles that were working together. No. So back to Dodd. So in '61, Dodd participated in the Senate Judicial Subcommittee on Internal Security, and they had a hearing on the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, who most people uh, have heard of is associated with Oswald. Well, when you actually go into the files. A lot of people already know that that is the case. Oswald was never actually a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. There was no chapter in New Orleans. He had fabricated all of that to try to get some sort of communist veneer. Right. You know, an interesting uh, footnote. I believe if folks have heard of Harry Dean, if you haven't, uh, Google him. Uh, I think he was working undercover. I think it was for the Dodd Committee, infiltrating the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in Chicago and L.A., um, but I don't know enough about that story to go on any further than that. Um, I'll just say it's been a while since I've looked into it, but for some reason that sticks out of my head uh, as just an interesting aside. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd say, too, another one from the Chicago area that I, I just remembered, uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, Char, um, uh, Richard Kane, who is a subordinate of Sam Giancana, who also was a police officer, an agency informant, an FBI informant, <laughs> and a corrupt police officer. Uh, he sent uh, memos to the CIA stating that Oswald and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in Chicago were trying to assassinate President Kennedy. So hmm. I don't know if he was trying to lend credence to a setup or how that plays into it. But yeah, it seems like a lot of people were trying to implicate the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. It was, I mean, it wasn't a militant group, first of all. It was it was more of a political media group yeah. for Cuba and for helping communists. Yeah, just getting the word out there, spreading the word about you know supporting Cuba and Castro and, and free trade, I think. Was the uh, you know because we had embargoed that uh, Cuba, of course, after the Bay of Pigs, and uh, you know, kind of hurt. Uh, uh, I think it was the sugar economy, and uh, you know, of course, cigars. You know, it was just it's all about opening trade. You know, fair play, fair, fair free trade. Well, with Cuba, I believe was their goal. Yeah, saying, hey, it's not so bad, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and it makes no sense whatsoever that that group of all the groups, there were plenty of other groups that were much more militant, and actually you could make links between them directly and the KGB and them directly and the Communist Party that would be more likely to undertake these things. I think they were a scapegoat. Right. I think the FPCC was just a convenient group to blame. 
and easy to infiltrate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, so some people still claim, despite the evidence proving Oswald was never a member, that, you know, the FPCC was, you know, he was a member, despite all the facts regarding it. And that there was a New Orleans chapter, despite that there never was one. Even Marina Oswald said when questioned that she knew that, that no such group existed, that she was just helping Oswald. <laughs> so, so Senator Dodd attempted to interview um, Mr. Richard Berlin Tussey, who was a former member of the leading FBCC committee who had set up operations in Cleveland. Tussey's answers, every answer to the Dodd committee, included refusing to testify as not to incriminate himself under the Fifth Amendment and the First Amendment right to free speech. Shocker. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this was consistent. When you go through the files, it's just consistent. Every person does that. I think, you know, half of it is, of course, they don't want to admit that they are either a member of the Communist Party or that they're helping in communist activities, but especially after the Red Scare. Oh, yeah. You know I mean, what I mean? Yeah, they you didn't know, want to get blacklisted. Of the Rosenbergs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, and they didn't want to get blacklisted or lose their job or lose their friends, family, and... Be Which probably happened in some cases, just well, yeah. and called. Well, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, Tussie answers the doc committee. You know, he wouldn't testify to incriminate himself. And then uh, his ex-wife offers all the same answers under questioning. Like, basically, no member of the FPCC will cooperate. The only person that ends up cooperating uh, with them, and they identify Tussie as the chairman of the Cleveland FPCC branch, uh, and his wife is a member was a police department uh, subversive division member. His name was Ungvary, was his last name, the officer. And he testified at one meeting that he had attended with his partner. There was also a police confidential informant and a reporter present unknown to the FPCC members. <laughs> was his name Jack Ruby? <laughs> <laughs> I know, different reporter, I think. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, FPCC member named Rosen challenged the subcommittee's jurisdiction, the right to investigate, and that the inquiry served no legislative purpose, and all his objections were overruled, so, you know, which was an unexpected. Again, so that was basically another. their encounter with FPCC. Uh, so Dodd, I'm sure, as we can all imagine, was a vigorous opponent of communism. He was also a former FBI member. A Nuremberg trial prosecutor. Hmm. He was pro-Vietnam, and he had supported Johnson in 1960, which is an interesting thing. Of course. Yeah, I mean, all those views line up with the, uh, uh, of course, you know, everything that Kennedy was opposed to. But yep. Hmm. So, so Dodd. Now, here's where it goes a little bit different, which you would not expect of somebody who was so pro, you know, pro-Vietnam, pro-Johnson seemingly uh, pro-war and from the FBI. He was the lone wolf senator impressing for gun reform in 63. He was the only one. Right. So basically everybody else was ignoring him when he had the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, this is uh, the portion that might be most relevant to what you want to talk about. And that's the Juvenile Delinquency Subcommittee. And that was to inspect mail-order guns because they said the children and you know the mentally... Uh, unbalanced could order guns through the mail with ease. Right, and, and uh, you know he he may have just been ahead of his time or ahead of the game, I should say, because you know since he did that, uh, you know the the regulations on firearms in in federally and also states, you know, have been increased phenomenally. And and you know with all these lone wolf shooters and all these shootings going on now, they're trying to clamp down on gun rights even further. Um, but we still have the Second Amendment, so good luck. 
balance. Right. You right. can't you can't make it too hard, but I'm I'm not I'm personally support background checks. That's I think that some of the stuff Dodd was suggesting back then should have been done then. Yeah, I mean it was too but, easy to get a gun. I mean you could have went in any gun shop and just been oh yeah, I like that, thank you, and walk out with it and Exactly. Or, or you could sit on your couch and order one from home and have it delivered, you know, to your post office and you know it wasn't that hard to fake identification back then, you know, it wasn't uh, yeah. as regulated as it is now, but uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so Dodd, he, he gets in this assignment, he tests firearms regulations, you know, by having people actually try the mail system, try. And like you said, two of the companies that are involved with the JFK case, you know, checking what their, how they would send things through the mail. And what was revealed was it was easy. It was easy that anyone could order through the U.S. Postal System with minimal problems. Yeah, I mean, even Alec Heidel. I mean, it's so exactly. easy. I mean, it, it's that, that's what interested me about this is the correlation of of what Oswald was supposedly doing, um, using an alias to obtain these weapons from two of these gun companies that were under investigation by the Dodd Committee for mail order. Uh, well, fraud, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and it shows you that, you know, not to say that it couldn't have been Oswald. You know, it could have been Oswald. He could have been, based on how, you know, what my and your position is, he could have been tricked into doing it. He could have been told to do it, that he was going to use it for something else, that maybe he was going to be part of a, a mission to go against, you know, uh, communists or other people. It doesn't, I, I just don't think people should automatically jump to the fact that either he did it or he didn't do it. It's right. probably somewhere in the middle. He might have been manipulated to do it. Yeah, and that's what, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, he could have been chosen to do it. You know, say, uh, hey, uh, you know, the Senate subcommittees were investigating these gun companies. You know, we'd like you to, you know, as your mission to try to obtain a, a rifle and a pistol from two different places, this place and that place. And use a fake name. See if you can get, you know, see if you can get them sent to you and obtain them. And uh, that's not even to say that he kept them after they were sent. And there's problems, you know, and we'll get into the problems with actually obtaining both the rifle and the pistol, um, you know, from the from this post office box in his name uh, when these weapons were sent to Alec Heidel's name. And we'll get into all that, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so so basically, uh, you know, it, it revealed how easy the problem, uh, how easy someone could get it through the mail, which also, you know, like we were just saying, it could infer, too, that someone else ordered them using the name Heidel, gave them to Oswald, without him having knowledge of them being ordered with his alias. You know, it, there's... there's Many sorts of ways it could have occurred, but you know the guns got to him, and it was—it's strange that all of this, you know, official actions are going on concerning that specific, these specific businesses that he supposedly used in obtaining these weapons. Yeah, and I'm not 100% convinced that these weapons got to him. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we have absolutely zero proof whatsoever that he even picked these uh, weapons up from the post office. Zero evidence, no receipts, no nothing. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's definitely doubt, reasonable doubt about a lot of the exhibits, unfortunately, that are used in some of these official investigations. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think you know John Armstrong's done good work on it. Gil Jesus has done good work on 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 the rifle, and you know tracking it from when when it got to this country and as it's made it way made its way to Kleins, and then supposedly made its way to Oswald, and then how the payments were were uh, you know kind of screwy and the money order wasn't where it's supposed to be and there's no stamps on it the correct bank stamps there's all kinds of problems with with the rifle and the pistol as far as that goes um but yeah go ahead yeah i think ultimately it's going to take you know a researcher that specializes in that area of the case they're gonna to have to go to a postal inspector or someone and that's i think how we'll get at, you know more definitive confirmation just so we can proceed to know where the problems are yeah well i mean you gotta you gotta think for a second people that when this rifle was shipped okay it was shipped to uh lee harvey oswald's post office box in a different name okay in a five foot long carton that did not fit in his post office box now oswald was somewhat of a pack rat I guess you could say at least um, just from observing a lot of his possessions that he you know he had in his rooming rooming house and, and at the pains you know he had like you know a two-year-old cereal box top he had old receipts he had old check stubs he had you know he, he kept everything pretty much you know I, I don't know why but yet we don't have you know, the card that was put in his post office box said, hey, uh, you know, we have a delivery for Alec Heidel or A. Heidel, you know, and uh, you need to see the postmaster to get your carton, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, there's all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems when you start looking at dates and, uh, you know, where the order was sent, what, what actually what uh, post office box or mailbox that you know the the order was sent from i think it was like it was way far away from uh jagger child stovall uh you know too far from walking distance and there was mailboxes that were closer and he was supposed to be at work at the time but uh it just problem after problem Yeah, and when it, when it comes to the pistol, Carmine, that's exactly what he told Fritz uh, under, under interrogation that he did. He said he bought the pistol in Fort Worth at a store that he couldn't remember the name of. Or he bought a pistol. I shouldn't say the pistol. I sh I'll say a pistol. And he could have been referring to a pistol that he had bought before and sold to his brother. You know, it's hard to say. No, but you know, as you know, at least looking back on the on the interview notes, um, you can kind of see where Oswald pretty much told him the truth. You know, he said, "Look, I lived in Russia, you know, for a certain amount of time. I'm a Marxist. You know, I I, I don't know of any specific instance in that interrogation that he blatantly lied to the police while in custody." Um, at least not to my knowledge. I mean, of course, he might have denied certain things, but he might not have done certain things. So, um, 
you know, why he would lie about this, I don't know, you know, about, about getting a pistol in Fort Worth. Because he told him seven, you know, I, I bought it seven months ago at his store. You gotta remember, he also broke the rifle down and then assembled it again, which would also, yeah, but it would also throw off the accuracy of the weapon. You know, because your sight gets all, I think that sight that was on there was all janky and, and, you know, they had to shim it and, you know, it was just, you know, I don't know how he could have made them shots. Okay. So basically, we had him, you know, he questioned and was present for Diaz Land's questioning. They had the FPCC committee. They had the committee uh, 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 where uh, they had the police informant. He had Dodd then pressing for uh, gun reform and then show how easy it could be ordered through the mail. Now, Dodd made a bill that died that year in Congress in 63 that would bar criminals the mentally deficient from owning guns. On November 1960, November 4th, 63, he presided over the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on internal security again. And during the questioning of a reporter, it was revealed that this reporter was working with anti-Castro commando groups and the, for news expose. That they had lived and rented a home financed by the reporter for media and stored weapons, ammunition, and explosives there as well. And eventually their arms were seized by customs agents in 1965. So... Dodd then comments uh, about the FPCC's importance in, on November 23rd, the day after President Kennedy was assassinated. Yet, in the days, uh, the supposed how powerful he had, but the FPCC was, they were going out of business. Its lifespan was brief, actually, when, and it was attributed to the general anti-Castro sentiment in America, especially after President Kennedy's death. And then you got also considering prior congressional hearings, including Dodd's, that exposed the FPCC as likely connections to communism through Castro funding it through his United Nations delegation. So I think that these factors combined with the horrific press that the group had received when Oswald's false claim linked them, you know, by uh, the FPCC's leader, V.T. Lee, stated the group was dead with no plans to reorganize, and by 64 in April, it was dissolved. Right. And whether you think either wittingly or unwittingly, that uh, what what the assassination did and what blaming it on Oswald and these mail-order weapons did and the fact that they termed him as a lone nut, a crazy person who obtained these weapons through the mail, he pretty much bolstered Dodd's accusations and, and lended support to him whether it was warranted or not for his... Uh, you know, his investigation. I mean, he said, you know, he could have said, look, this crazy guy got these mail order weapons. You know, we need to do something about it. And that's how, that's how reform happens. There's a reason, you know, that things get reformed and normally they don't fix things until they're broken. And, uh, 
you know, this would have been perfect for Dodd to take to him and say, look, look what happened. It got our president killed. We need to do something about this now, you know. Yeah, or yeah. the late 60s, yeah. Well, after the arrest, a Bosch supporter named Jose Salazar stated he would complain to Senator Thomas Dodd of the event. Yeah, now it's it's odd to me that Dodd has this big interest in these anti-Castro Cubans. And, you know, of course you throw Lee Oswald into the mix. It's not out of the realm of possibility that he could have had contact with Lee Oswald. You know, as being one of these guys that came back from Russia and, uh, you know, if he saw what he was doing in New Orleans or thought that he could use use him, you know, to his benefit, been in contact with him, you know, in uh, early in 63. Yeah, another, uh, an exile group that actually referred to him was um, the Movimiento Unidad Revolucionaria, or the UR, and they spoke highly of aiding Senator Thomas's dad work on establishing a Cuban government exile in the U.S. So that was pushing for that too in the late in the mid '60s. Hmm. That we helped fund a Cuban government exile to oppose Castro. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, this is this is all Thomas Dodd. You know, you got him fair tied to the Fair Play for Cuba committee. You got him tied to mail order weapons. You got him tied to Anna Castro Cubans and. Uh, you know, trying to set up a government in exile here. So there you have Mr. Thomas Dodd. I mean, there's some there's some uh, interesting connections there, Carmine. Yeah, and well, his son, I believe Christopher Dodd's still serving, or he might have just recently left uh, Congress, but his son was a senator for many years as well. Of course, he was. Once <laughs> <laughs> you're in, you're in. People. The you know, we've already covered yep. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they say, what? <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> yes. There were five weapons found in the school book depository. <laughs> All of them with Mac yeah. Wallace's fingerprints on them. Exactly. So, so Fetzer would say. <laughs> <laughs> so the Manlinger Hercano, in my, you know, in my estimation, based on the research I've done and the experts I've consulted, I would say is not a deficient weapon. But it's not a good weapon either. It was an average at best surplus weapon. So, you know, a run of the mill, older model, out of service for the military weapon. And I think that the flaws are of primary importance. You know, I mean, like you were saying earlier about the scope, the scope was misaligned, it required metal shims to compensate, which might have forced them to rely on the iron sights, that the scope was not even used. Right. You know, we got the weapon sling used to study the grip as a makeshift holster strap, uh, the firing pin is rusty, and the weapon is determined obsolete by the Italian military prior, years prior, before it's being sold surplus. And some of the guns were modified, uh, they were cut down, so that they would be able to fire a, a cheaper type of ammunition, and before the sale was complete and it was shipped over here, so, and improper adjustments actually caused the death of a few people from explosions inside the gun barrel. <laughs> 
Yeah, it doesn't sound like I'll, I mean, it could have got the job done, but we're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about a uh, Johnson 30i6 here, but uh, it could have got the job done if it was, you know, in decent working order. Always hiding in a in a damp corner, you know that somebody had just left from, or he's got to put this thing together real quick. And the president's coming, you know, yeah, without tools, you know, the president's running late, but he doesn't know that. Um, so you got a flooring crew working on the same floor at the same time. Yeah, you don't know when anybody's gonna walk in there at any time for any reason. Um, yeah, ballsy. Yeah, and you be know, called and, cool and, and collected. And, and yeah. consider that he couldn't make a mistake when he's lived a life full of them. Yeah, for, I mean, you when you stop and think, <laughs> yeah, when you stop and think, man, that for, for for him for him to pull this off and and walk out of that building, do you know how much shit would have had to go just perfect? Mm-hmm. I mean, the timing of this, the timing of that. You know, the the shots, the you know, the escape. The, I mean, it's just insane when you think about it <laughs> how he was supposed to do this and and, and walk right out of there and yeah. mission accomplished that yeah yeah that everything would fall to his favor yeah I mean not one thing went against him not one so yeah we have we have all those problems with the gun and you know the, the unconsidered safety feature on the trigger mechanism that makes it a lot harder and requires some practice that he doesn't demonstrably have that no one's been able to prove all these years that he even had firing practice. Well, we so he can't that. operate the weapon as quickly as it should be. And then, as you were saying earlier, then we have on top of all that the Mauser myth that gets thrown in with him. Yeah, I mean, we had Garland Slack, you know, saying that he was uh, shooting at the shoot the the was sports drone rifle range. Yeah. But. And that turned out to be yeah, not him. Yeah. Yeah, the woods too. He had uh, the father and the son. Saying that they saw, but the Carcano that they saw was shooting fire out of the front. Right. And the guy was actually the guy was actually picking up his shells afterwards and hitting his targets, which is not you know a lot of people too they like to talk about how Oswald was a sharpshooter. Well, yeah, he was a sharpshooter in 1956. Yeah. By the time he got out, he was only a marksman. So you you could see that without regular practice, his shooting skills were degrading. Then when he went to Russia, he only used shotguns. He weren't allowed to have a rifle there, so he doesn't have any time for rifle practice over there. He gets back here, he's never seen with the rifle except playing with the Volt in New Orleans. No one's 
been able to prove he's had any practice. So this is the guy that's going to supposedly make these shots. Yep, bullshit. Yeah, it's it's so improbable. It's very improbable. So we have the Mauser myth thrown on top of it, and that is that people have tried to say that the gun that was found was not a Carcano, but was a Mauser. And this was actually reported and repeated by the DPD, so it's not unreasonable that some people for a while would believe that. But the problem is, is when you get down to looking at the evidence, it wasn't a Mauser. Because we have, first of all, people need to realize that a Mauser, the the Carcano was actually called the Mauser Provinciano. It was a, a mode of the Mauser. The Carcano was like a rip-off copy yeah. of the Mauser. Yeah, I mean, you know, that has to be the most misidentified weapon in the history of mankind. Yeah. I mean, and the DPD must have been just so inefficient. That rifle was described as a Japanese rifle. It was described as a 303 British Enfield rifle. It was described as a Mauser. But it's a Carcano. Yep. When it's yeah. stamped right on the goddamn barrel made in Italy. I mean, come on. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, people that they didn't want, they also have to understand that most of the people initially encountering the weapon never even handled it. You know, they never did an inspection on it. It was just passed in front of them. People are going all over the place. The president has just been murdered. But we've, you know, the only official document containing the word Mauser, which was often repeated by Mark Lane, someone who likes to push the Mauser myth, is that the CIA had a file with the word Mauser. And that is true. They did use the word Mauser because they had got the missed report from the DPD. But all the traits of the Carcano were there. It has right. all the traits of the Carcano, it has the links of the Carcano, and it just they used the word Mauser because they were misinformed. And this is not the CIA hiding something because they screwed up a bunch of different things. You know, they made reports of Oswald and saying they have photos of Oswald and they never did in Mexico City. So it's not like they didn't mess things up. Yeah, I mean a good correlation is is you know, reports of where the shots came from initially. You had reports from the fourth floor, the second floor, the third floor, the fifth floor, the seventh floor, the sixth floor. You know, and you had, uh, well, I forgot what I was going to say, but. Uh, well, yeah, just a lot of speculation, basically, is I think what you're Yeah, doing. yeah. A ton of speculation. Yeah, and, uh, you know, where people were, I guess, very unsure of the facts at that point. You know, they were they were very yeah. much relying on uh, people that didn't really know what they were talking about and just, re- you know, relaying the information. Yeah, yeah, it was secondhand, thirdhand information, which is fine. You know, the, we're never going to have second or thirdhand information that's going to be you know, a perfect representation of what occurred. But, you know, people also need to consider that it requires a plot too large. How many members of the DPD, really, are they going to involve in a plot? I mean, if you don't want to get caught, you don't have a bunch of extraneous members to your plot, and these guys don't need to know anything. It was easy for them to screw up all on their own. They didn't need any help. Yeah, I mean, if there was... It doesn't have to be something nefarious. Yeah, if there was another rifle found in that building, they could have easily had another officer get get it out and nobody would have ever known i mean it's it's not uncommon to see officers carrying rifles or shotguns or guns in particular you know they could they could have got another rifle out of that building with no fanfare whatsoever and probably not seen by a whole lot of people or even suspected you know so the fact that there's yeah the fact that there's you know blatantly going to be two rifles found with with a bunch of witnesses is just ridiculous yeah. Well, and we also have the Alea film, you know, and a 
just, you know, less, I think less than a minute or so many seconds after the, they had just gotten in there when no one else would have had access. And that shows the Carcano. You know, people try to do their own version of it or flip it around or change it and say that it's a Mauser, but it's not. It's a Carcano. Right. You know, all members of the DPD admitted to never expect, except uh, for the ones that handled it, to never expect the weapon closely. Most of them didn't handle it. And I think that's reasonable with all the other things, including the similarity of the two guns with the mis- why the misidentification occurred. You know, people say that they say that Roger Craig and his claim of a Mauser is more compelling, but it's not when you stack it up against the evidence. And in Craig's first interview with Mark Lane for the Garrison inquiry, Craig never mentions the Mauser. It, it develops later with Lane's film feeding the fire. You know, nobody, if it was such an important thing, it would have been mentioned in his reports for Garrison's investigation. Exactly. And you know what I wish people would have been asked back then or if they would have reported it is whether or not there was a distinct air of gunpowder, you know, a smell of gunpowder on the sixth floor. Or if they, you know, sniff tested the rifle to see if it had recently been fired. We don't have any of those. I mean, you you never hear any any officer reporting, oh, man, we went up to the sixth floor. You can smell the gunpowder everywhere. Because there wasn't a lot of windows open on the sixth floor. There was a few, but that gunpowder would have, you know, the smell would have hung in the air for quite some time. Yeah, no, there's unfortunately, yeah, big, there's a a dearth of information, I think, that was lost just because it was improper handling. You know, we've still got the the arguments going on over uh, just, you know, Oswald's fingerprints when those were obtained off of the weapon. Right. You know, why did the DPD somehow, with lesser means, find these things prior, and then the FBI lab, which had far more advanced technological services available, was unable to find any of it? Yeah. And that the prints were of no use by them. Right. Well, apparently, I was reading the book First Day Evidence. is very good to actually see what they say, you know, our fingerprints all over this rifle. Um around the trigger guard, but they, 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 they were, I guess they were so faint that they couldn't lift them and they put tape over them and it was sent to the FBI like that, but the FBI couldn't, couldn't pull them off the gun. Um, I, I don't know if they didn't dust them first before they put, the, put the tape on it to protect them or, or what the hell happened. But yeah, it's just Keystone cop stuff. necessarily that the entire DPD was horrendous. You know, they did some decent portions of the investigation, but it was just, there was no communication a lot of times between the higher-ups and the street-level cops who were actually undertaking the thing. Uh, from, you know, when Chuck, when we talked to Chuck about some of the cops he's interviewed from the DPD, you know, two or three people were signing their names, documents that they weren't even there for, that just wanted to be included in the record as having been at the historical event. You know, yeah. you the, the rookies getting told to do the report when they weren't even there the whole time. Yeah, and you got forensic criminology at its infancy. You know, really, I'm yeah. talking about 52 years ago. I mean, you know, a lot of these techniques were very, very basic. You know, even, mm-hmm. you know, fingerprinting and, and analysis and, you know, all this stuff and that stuff and then the, the, uh, the nitrate test. Very yeah, basic yeah, stuff. Trying to rely on the nitrate test and we know that that's not reliable now. Right. So, yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think that, yeah, there were just so many.
money problems that they weren't accounted for. Then you add in the pressure of the situation. And I think that every official group, you know, from some of the files I read about the FBI, the only reason that Siebert and O'Neill were at Kennedy's autopsy was because Hoover assigned them there, and they didn't even have jurisdiction. You know, a lot of these official groups were just jockeying to be the one to try to solve the case. They wanted the credit for solving the case, but yeah. none of them had jurisdiction. Oh, yeah, it was a... I mean, I was watching uh, the movie JFK the, again the other night. Like I, I always try to watch it on the twenty second, just just for uh, you know, just to remind myself of things. And you know, watching the scene in the autopsy room there, you know, there's like it's twenty or thirty people. You got military people, doctors everywhere, FBI people, Secret Service. It's just a cluster f, you know. efficiency of the investigation was covered up as well um yeah you know just to so they wouldn't look like wouldn't look so foolish uh, and amateurish you know because hoover didn't hoover is you know he always got his man you know you know and uh or so he claimed <laughs> yeah and if they didn't have evidence against you they'd make it um which is <laughs> which is quite possible of course when it comes to these weapons uh I think it's suspect to me how, you know, the FBI shows up at Klein's, can't find a receipt, can't find anything. So then they take the microfish back to Washington and suddenly they find the Oswald order form on the microfish. Um, but like I said, there's just problems. And I'll tell you, John Armstrong, Gil Jesus, and, and now David Joseph is, is really starting to dig into this rifle and uh, the pistol and they're doing great work on it so I'll put up links for everybody to go check out and read more about it from all these guys so you can see for yourself the problems you know Exactly. So is that about it for the Carcano Carmine? Yeah, I would say that we, we covered that fairly well in the problems with the Carcano. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. All right, Carmine, so let's uh let's take a look at the pistol now. 
And a lot of what um, I'm going to be talking about here is going to be coming directly from uh, David Joseph's new article over that can be found over at ctka.net. And it's part three in his uh, The Evidence is a Conspiracy series, and this focuses on the pistol. And the reason that I've been looking at the pistol is my scenario for the Tippett shooting. Um, because for those who don't know, I'm of the belief that uh, Larry Crayford is the one that actually killed Tippett. And the point of contention in this theory, and I'll admit that it is a slight problem, but one that I don't think can be overcame, is, of course, the pistol. You know, if, if Crayford did it, how did he get the pistol? Or if this, if this is even Oswald's pistol, I don't know. Because there's lots of problems, of course, you know, with the, uh, the provenance of it. And much like the Carcano, um, <clears throat> you know, they they tried to prove that, of course, that, that Oswald ordered and obtained the pistol. There's problems with that. Um, we don't have any way to prove that Oswald uh, purchased ammunition for this pistol or the Carcano, for that matter. Um, that Oswald obtained, of course, the pistol in Dallas. And he had to have taken it with him to New Orleans, and then he would have had to have brought it back uh, to Dallas. Did he? And we have reports that, at least from one book that I know of, he had a pistol in Mexico that he pulled out at the Russian consulate. Um, you know, so did did he carry this pistol everywhere he went? Or what did he do with it when he didn't? Um, Marina didn't know anything about the pistol. Uh, the bullets, as we're going to see, as, as, as uh, now this is the first I've heard of this. Uh, the bullets that they supposedly recovered from the pocket of Lee Oswald uh, all show signs of having been stored in an ammo belt. <laughs> okay. Um, there, there's very distinct markings that ammo belts make on bullets. You know, they kind of rub the sheen off in certain areas. Um, much like those worn by policemen in the early 60s. Um, not so much like banditos, like I don't think Oswald had an ammo belt, you know. Um, and the bullets and shells of different manufacturers don't match up in terms of the number of each type. Um, there was two distinct manufacturers, I think, for the, uh, for the bullets recovered from the uh, pistol. Yeah. And there's also problems with the provenance, the chain of custody for the pistol, um, which is where my hope lies in all this as far as being able to say, okay, here's 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 what happened. But um, and this, of course, involves the DPD officers that, you know, arrested Oswald at the theater and uh, exactly what happened to the pistol um, after they got back to headquarters. Um, and of course, you know, it was said that if, I think Fritz said it under oath to the Warren Commission that uh, they searched Oswald when they arrested him. You know, why wouldn't you? I mean, 
he could have had another gun in his pocket, you know what I mean? For Christ's sakes or a knife or something. Um, but the arresting officer said that they didn't search him because they were in a rush to get him out of there and he was already in handcuffs. You know, but somebody in handcuffs can still reach in their back pocket if their hands are behind their back and pull a knife out and stab somebody. You know, or if they had another gun in the back of their pants, like a lot of people put one, you know, right in your butt crack there. You know, he could have pulled it out and shot to the right, to the left, and got out of there. Um, so it makes no sense when they say that they didn't they didn't search him um, in the theater. If they didn't, then <laughs> you know there's there's more ineptitude on the on the DPD's part. But you know these uh, shells first show up I think before his first lineup around it was around 4:30. Um, they searched him before they took him down to the show up, and that this is when they supposedly found the. Uh, the other bullets and the bus transfer <laughs> but uh, you know the, the seaport traders place because once again like the rifle the gun that Oswald ordered is not the one that he was sent he actually ordered a 38 um, st.w.2 dot dot inch BBL I think that means the 38. Uh, I don't know what, what that, what the abbreviation is, you know, supposed to be, but he ended up getting a Smith and Wesson 38 special with a two-inch uh, barrel commando version, and of course it was uh, supposedly ordered by A.J. Heidel. Now, when you order a mail-order weapon. Okay, you're supposed to have a witness to uh, to sign this form that the person ordering the weapon has never been convicted of a felony or a crime or violent uh, exceeding one year. Um, and, and his witness, it looks to be uh, somebody by the name of uh, either J.F. or D.F. Drittle, D-R-I-T-T-A-L. Now, I don't know, you know, I've never heard that name before. I've never seen Oswald use that name before for anything. But now the Seaport Traders, right? Now, when they send the gun, they sent it to his post office box. Now, this would be like UPS in modern day. Uh, this would be like UPS delivering a package Um to your P.O. box, which they don't do. They would deliver it to your address. Um, and back then, okay, this was, uh, this thing was COD. I think he, um, he sent a deposit of $10, which left a balance of $19.95 to be paid in cash. Um, and he actually ended up not having to pay the shipping and handling fees of a dollar what was it a dollar 27 i think it was um so essentially uh railway express who is the shipper um shipped this gun for free if we're to believe this um 
and a little background on the Rail Railway Express. Um, it was not part of the post office. Um, it was a national monopoly set up by the federal government in 1917 and allowed to use the existing railroad infrastructure like UPS uses the roads today. Railway Express was owned by in conglomeration with 86 railroads in proportion to the express traffic on their lines. No one railroad or group or, or group of railroads had control of the agency. Um, so basically, it was just like, you know, like they said, UPS using the roads today. Well, this uh, Railway Express was owned by pretty much all the railroads who profited off of it. And use their trains uh, to deliver packages and mail. <laughs> now, so Oswald got his pistol without having to pay, you know, shipping and handling charges. He was never charged. There's no, there's no proof. We don't have the receipt that he paid his COD. We don't have a card that was put in his post office box saying, "Hey, hey, Mr. Heidel, your package is here." Uh, we need you to come sign for it because he would have had to sign for it because he would have had to pay for it. Now, Railway Express would have wanted to get paid, not the post office. You know, it wouldn't have been up to the post office to pay Railway Express. It would have been up to A. Heidel who ordered this rifle. And there's yet another thing that doesn't make sense about this, Carmine. And, yeah, there's a lot of uh, reason to believe that a company is not going to pick up anything. I've never known of any sort of company to want to pay for anything that they're not supposed to pay for. Exactly. Exactly. And like I said, they, they actually, Oswald actually made out on this deal because I think the gun that he ordered um, was twenty nine ninety five. Well, financially he made out maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the gun he ordered, I think it was twenty nine ninety five, and the gun they sent him was thirty was worth thirty nine ninety five. So he actually got a better gun at a cheaper price. Yeah, it's strange that they just wouldn't send him, you know, like rain chuck or something until they had the gun back in stock rather than giving him a better gun in both instances. Yeah, and, and like I said before, you know, Oswald kept all of his stubs and receipts and little papers and, and all kinds of stuff for all kinds of stuff. But yet nothing related to the guns, nothing related to the, uh, you know, Railway Express or the post office. He, he didn't keep any of that. So it's weird that he didn't. Um. Now, yeah, definitely seems out of character. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Now, let me see here. I'm trying to run past this tippet part of it. Um. Now, when Oswald is arrested and and the pistol is taken into evidence, okay, there's there's two different stories here. Um. And we're talking about chain of evidence. Um, supposedly story number one is that Gerald Hill gives T.L. Baker the pistol. Um, the story most of us know is summarized in Gerald Hill's report. Uh, we'd remember that Oswald was arrested at the DPD by 2 p.m., yet Hill does not pass his pistol on to Baker until 3.15, and in some reports, it's as late as 4 p.m. Um, now, the... In Hill's report, this is when witnesses involved in the transfer of suspected tip and murder weapon from Hill's possession to T.L. Baker, and this is done in front of Fritz. But then we also have Officer Carroll. 
and he was one of the arresting officers in the theater. And he's actually in the picture of, you know, the famous picture of Oswald being taken out the front of the theater. And he is actually holding the pistol in his right hand. Um, Officer Carroll started to get into the car. He pulled a snub nose revolver from his belt and handed it to me. He stated that this was the suspect's gun and that he obtained it from Officer McDonald immediately uh, after the gun was subdued. When the pistol was given to me, it was fully loaded and one of the shells had a hammer mark on the primer. I retained this gun in my possession until approximately 3.15 Friday. Uh, in the presence of Officer Carol McDonald, I turned the weapon over to Baker. And this is uh, from Gerald Hill. Now it says he marked uh, the side of the casing on all the shells. They were turned over to Baker at the time. But yet, if we go back and look at the shells that are in the National Archives, uh, we don't see Gerald Hill's marks on them. So that's interesting. Now, do they, because there's one, one thing I can contribute to this, because I know as where I'm more Carcano-centered, you know more about the pistol. Were all of the bullets recovered according to the National Archives? Did they have six bullets? Well, we'll get, they only have four. Yeah, we'll get to that because there's there's a problem with that okay. as well. Um, it yeah. appears that that one of the the Western cartridges and one of the Winchesters are not included in what is actually what actually makes it to the FBI. Um, maybe. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. That's one of the few like I said, one of the few things I've come across related to the bullets for the pistol was that yeah they were given three I believe three uh, Remington Peters and one Winchester Western, and there were still two other bullets that weren't accounted for, even in 64. Right, yeah. So it seems to me that I think probably the DPD might have kept one of each of them, maybe, uh, or, or who knows. Um, now, there is another story given to us by Paul Bentley, who is, of course, the cigar-chomping guy, detective, that we see in, in the famous picture of Oswald being taken out of the front of the theater with a shitty grin on his face because they just got their man. Um, and what he says is this. Uh, Bentley says that the pistol was initialed by me and turned over to Lieutenant Baker and Captain Fritz by Sergeant Hill. Um, so supposedly he, he initialed the pistol, but not the ammo. Um, so from what we can tell so far, this pistol is covered, supposedly supposed to be covered in initials from Gerald Hill, McDonald, Bentley, Carroll, and Baker, uh, supposedly all put their initials on this pistol. <laughs> and at the time the pistol was released to Baker, McDonald, Carroll, and I had marked it for identification purposes and in the presence of McDonald and Carroll, I marked the, uh, side of the casing on all the shells, which were also turned over to Detective Baker at the same time. Now, there's also another guy who was supposed to initial these shells, uh, an officer, I think his name is Poe, and this was at the typical crime scene, and this is on the shells, and uh, guess what? None of the initials are there. <laughs> yes, that's right. At the National Archives, uh, none of these initials are there, and he actually couldn't identify them for the Warren Commission because he couldn't find his initials on the shells, the holes. So there's a problem. Um, so, One that seems to dog a lot of these official investigations. Yeah. And that somehow the evidence has been switched out or misplaced or just entirely destroyed. Yeah. So, I mean, is it, is it, 
is there this much ineptitude in this department or is something is something else going on here um, and uh, like I said before uh, David has a picture in his article <clears throat> showing these bizarre markings um, on the actual uh, bullets from you know where it appears that they had been uh, in a a uh, a bullet holder you know a, a bullet belt you know they're just pieces of leather you know that you put bullets in uh, so they don't fall out and uh, you know if they're left in there long enough they're gonna leave some kind of a mark because leather of course absorbs moisture and you know things get dirty dirt goes in there and gets rubbed around them and 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 sure enough if you look at, at the uh, I think it's CE 592 uh, 538 special cartridges found in the pocket of Lee Harvey Oswald after his arrest they all bear markings of being held in a uh, ammo belt which Oswald I don't think owned or at least they didn't find one did they no I've never heard of anyone finding an ammunition belt <laughs> no me either and you would, you would think from two different types of uh, cartridges that he was uh, rather slapdash in planning once again uh, meaning we know we had very little time to plan for either of these things with Tippett I've always you know I don't think necessarily that he is definitively guilty of the murder of Tippett but at least they have more evidence I think that in comparison to JFK it's a hell of a better case but it's still not a good case <laughs> right um all right, I found that it was uh this was a released to Vincent Drain FBI on 11:28 at 10 p.m. Five live, 38 caliber Western special shells initialed EB uh, were found in the left front pocket of Lee Harvey Oswald. I believe those are from Earl Boyd, who found them in his pocket right before the show up. And then we have four live, 38 caliber shells initialed Hill. Two Western and two RP special removed from Gun of Oswald at the time of arrest. And I repeat, four. <laughs> okay, supposedly were given to FBI and recovered from the Gun of Oswald at the time of the arrest. When he was supposedly had six in his gun at the time of the arrest. They, uh, four halls, um, RP... SPL and two initialed RD, one Western initialed. Uh, and one Western found by Virginia Davis. So this stuff's all over the place. It's it's a gigantic mess. I mean, it's there's clearly no chain of evidence here worth anything. Um, never would have stood up in a court of law at all. Um, it, it's it's a shit show. It's is basically what it is. And of course, none of Oswald's fingerprints are found on any of these halls or live ammunition, Carmine. Which is problematic because he had to load the gun. Yeah. And why would he put on gloves to load the gun and not keep them on to use it? Right. Um, you know, what always stood out to me is if, and I don't think he did, but if Oswald is the one that shot Tippett, okay, he there was all kind of eyewitnesses around that saw him do this, okay? You know, you got... Uh, you know, I don't even, I can't even run through all the Tippett witnesses to whoever shot Tippett. Um, you know, you got Markham Benavides, uh, I believe. Yeah, the, uh, the cab drive, Scoggins, and 
I mean, you got all these witnesses who supposedly saw Lee Harvey Oswald, and of course, he would have known that people saw him shoot Tippett. Okay, that if there's, you know, he's running people saying pet poor dumb cop or something, you know, he knows people saw him. So if you know people saw you do something, why are you going to deny that you did it? When it, you know, there's ten people saying you did, you know, and they all saw you. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It makes no yeah. sense. Um, but there we Unfortunately, have. Unfortunately, once again, though, there's a lot of more distance. Not to say that that, you know, like like I said, I like you. I, I think that fe- conspiracy is feasible based on a substantial amount of evidence. But it's also feasible that he is in some ways guilty. I don't think that Oswald's completely innocent. So whether or not he, I mean, he could have been one of two men that's a couple witnesses that they saw. Yeah, I mean, so I he, think he still could have been involved, but it doesn't mean that he mastermind or did this as a lone person. Right. I mean, but I think you know, I mean, there's indications that he was at the theater, you know, either at at the time or before Tippett was even being killed. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the timeline is totally screwed up. I mean, you got, you know, and when we've talked to people, they said that it was the just the watches at the hospital, which is possible. But even you have the none of the times line up where what they said Tippett's time of death was. Like they had him being dead when the commission thought that he was being shot and they had him at the hospital when people thought that he hadn't even left the scene yet. I mean, this, this, this ambulance had to be right there. Picked yeah. him up, didn't do any of the normal things that normally you would do to see if he's alive or, you know, resuscitation or something. And just, he was gone according to the various forms that all disagreed with each other. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you had to have the guy that he, you know, he radio the police and say, you know, tell him what happened. And they would have to call the ambulance and then the ambulance would have to, you know, the guys would have to get ready and get out there in the car yeah. and then drive there. And yeah, I mean, it's, and I think it was somebody that looked, might've looked like Oswald. Um, Which is possible too. Yeah. You know, cause we have here an interesting little tidbit. Uh, when Mr. Ball, uh, Joseph Ball is questioning officer McDonald, Nick McDonald. Uh, he, he asked him this. He said, uh, there is one thing I have marked on Exhibit 520. The document referred to was marked in Commission Exhibit uh, 520 for identification and re- received in evidence. As he said, he had not seen Oswald since, referring to McDonald. And I know this was taken. I think Exhibit 520 was just a picture of Oswald. Uh, Ball says, I, w- I would like to ask him one question with reference to 520 for identification, and we will later provide an identification, proper identification for it. Officer McDonald, does that look like the man you arrested in the Texas theater that day? And McDonald said, yes, sir. And I think the wording of that is is interesting, as as David pointed out. Is that the man you arrested at the theater is not asked. It's does that look like the man you arrested in the theater that day? You know, it's not that specific. You know, it's it's legalese. It's it's an open ended question. It's. You know, is it not it's sort of like the stuff that Spectre did at some points, like when when Spectre was asking the even the Bethesda doctors regarding the single bullet theory and why it's improbable. Both uh, Fink and Hume disagreed and said that that it was it was improbable that that was the bullet that did all that damage because it was in nearly perfect condition. Yeah. So yeah, you had the twisting. Whenever it would shy away from what the commission's conclusions were, you have them trying to twist the witness testimony back towards what they need. Yeah, I mean, why would he say, does this look like the man you arrested? Why not say, is this the man you arrested? You know, 
it's just it's an odd question that you know left McDonald wiggle room where he didn't have to actually lie, uh, you know, but he, you know, he's just answering the question honestly. Um, then McDonald says he didn't mark it initially, he marked it to the police station and turned it over because supposedly when Oswald was arrested, okay, we have this officer McDonald who is apparently, uh, you know, some kind of a uh, super cop, okay, because we have him uh, managing to stick the webbing between his thumb and forefinger in between the hammer and the firing pin of this pistol, right, Carmine? Yeah, he, he is he is very ninja like. And apparently he's uh, very dexterous. <laughs> yeah, but before this, you know, when they were you know creeping in the theater and they hadn't you know, apparently McDonough was playing this game where he was pretending to be checking out these other patrons, but he had his eye on Oswald the whole time and then just kind of rushed over to him and said, Alright, you know, get up, put your hands up. And then Oswald said oh, something to the effect of, it's, well, it's all over now, and took a swing at McDonald. And then they got to scuffling, and <clears throat> the, uh, you know, he performs his ninja-like maneuver with the uh, weapon, and it's recovered, and, uh, you know, that whole story. So apparently McDonald's this this great super, super cop, um, which, you know, I don't know if I can believe. Um, and then we have, of course, reports from two other cops that somebody was arrested in the balcony of the theater, not on the floor. And I don't know, uh, I mean, how stupid you would have to be to, um, mistake a balcony for the floor of the theater or whether somebody else was in fact arrested in the balcony and, uh, while Oswald was being arrested on the floor. But then you also have Butch Burroughs and Bernard Hare, two other witnesses who claim that somebody else who looked like Oswald was taken out the back door of the theater after Oswald was arrested out the front. Um, so these are all very, very odd claims and something you have to account for. Um, you know, these guys have nothing to gain by making this story up. Why would they make this story up, you know? yeah the witnesses don't have any good reason to just create something but you know like with the case of the mauser you've got these people these brush with greatness or these you know the brush with history moments where they just want to create a myth out of everything to be about them and you know sort of take away the focus from the case right right yeah you know I mean, I don't. I think that a lot of witnesses are credible. I got overlooked. Plus, you know, I mean, the, you're talking about how imprecise their methods were. Let's look at Dealey Plaza for one second. Just the number of witnesses. You know, there could have been over 600 people there, and they don't even have half of that in the commission report. You know, most of the witnesses weren't even questioned. A large chunk of them, anyway. Yeah, or, or called before the Warren Commission. You know, like the Newmans, you know, I mean, it's not like they were hiding. They were on TV, you know, right after it happened, uh, you know, giving their names saying, yeah, we were right there. We saw this. We saw that. And uh, but, yeah, now let's get back to the pistol here, because here's story number two. OK. Um, OK. Hill, Gerald Hill claims at 315, he gave the suspect pistol to T.L. Baker with witnesses who do not corroborate a receipt. Who did, which does not corroborate in a crime scene report, which does not include the pistol. 
the evidence suggests was handed to him. Officer Davenport of the traffic division tells us at 3.30, Captain Fritz asks officers to take the pistol to Captain Dowdy along with three live shells. Um, so let's see here. So that would lead us to say, okay, well, what happened to Hill giving the pistol to T.L. Baker, as McDonald, Baker, Hill, Bentley, and Carroll market around 4 p.m.? Um, so we have another inconsistency. Then we have Vincent Drain uh, given by Davenport, 138 Smith & Wesson, snub nose, serial number 510210, and an illegible number of shells. It looks like three. Um, three shells. Um, and this is by R.A. Davenport, signature of person receiving specimen was Barnes and Dowdy, signed by Vincent Drain. So Officer Barnes' testimony does not touch upon the evidence uh, presented above and in fact contradicts it. When Beelan is asking Barnes at the Warren Commission, uh, did, did you have anything to do with identifying either the slugs that were eventually removed from Officer Tippett's body or the pistol? No, Barnes says. Beelan says, what did you do when you returned to City Hall? Barnes said, we started working out the evidence and developing negatives of all the photos that were taken at the Kennedy assassination site and also at the Tippett site. Beelan, who were you working with at the time? Barnes, we had just about all the manpower of the crime scene search section working uh, day... Myself, Studebaker, Hicks, Livingston, Beelan, did you know about what time of day you were doing this? Barnes says, we started on, I would say, roughly after I returned to the city hall. I was getting close to 4 o'clock. So we have a problem with this timeline, Carmine, uh, exactly when this pistol was entered into evidence. Uh, you know, some people say as late as 4 or 4.30. Some people say as early as 3.15 or 3.30. Um, so we have all these contradictions about who was handling it, who was handling it, when it went into evidence, when it was given to the FBI, and problem after problem after problem. Um, not to mention Carmine, you know, weren't weren't the FBI and CIA supposedly watching uh, Oswald's mail? Oh yeah, we have we have documents that prove that. Oswald under observation by the CIA of under H.T. Lingual, which was their male observation. The FBI was observing him for years. They actually observed him up until October is when Hoover canceled the security flash. And you even had his aunt, Lillian Moret, informing the FBI about Oswald before the assassination. Yeah, I mean, and and I like the way uh, I like the way David calls this he calls it closed loop corroboration uh, of key item of evidence um for example the evidence does not support oswald ordering or paying for the pistol there's a lack of cod and shipping charges charged to oswald for the delivery of the pistol the lack of a postcard informing heidel of a delivery which in turn would not be left in oswald box that does not name heidel as an authorized recipient to have mail shipped there any evidence that this pistol existed while the Oswald supposedly lived at Neely Street and the lack of a chain of custody, which can be corroborated. Uh, one that proves the theater pistol is the evidence pistol. Um, all of which concludes uh, or leads him to conclude that the pistol, the ammo, the shells and evidence is the conspiracy to frame Oswald, which who could not possibly have been on the scene and at a theater simultaneously. 
too. I think that that's a lot of people attribute, you know, some sort of consistency to these exhibits that isn't really there. You know, if they don't have a chain of evidence, if they can't prove where the bullets were, why the FBI got less bullets than they were supposed to, why two of the bullets were not ever seemingly recovered, at least according to the FBI in 64, you know, or why the bullets have initials that don't have initials, the current ones don't have initials, but there were initials. That means we have evidence tampering. Yeah, and right here, I found it. It says he stated <coughs> that, uh, now this is about, uh, Officer Poe, um, stated that he had received two similar cartridge cases on November 22nd from Domingo Benavides at Dallas, Texas. And had on the same date given them to Pete Barnes from the crime lab. Barnes from the crime lab. Uh, he stated he recalled marking these cases before giving them to Barnes. But he stated that after a thorough examination of the four cartridges shown to him on June 12, 64, he cannot locate his marks. Therefore, he cannot positively identify any of these cartridges as being the same ones he received from Benavides. So, big shocker there. makes sense as many shots as were going off in there and uh, you know if of course you know you believe the, the autopsy findings that there was another gun present at least one other gun um, in the pantry you know firing from behind Kennedy more, more bad police work basically in both of these connected cases <laughs> yeah or purposeful cover up in both cases exactly um so there you have it, folks. You have this, the messed up stories of, of the supposed Heidel weapons. Um, you know, why they possibly could have been linked to Oswald. Um, even though he could have walked into any gun store in Texas and bought what he wanted without having to show identification uh, or, or anything else. And probably gotten it cheaper. Um, we got no way to prove that Oswald obtained ammunition for either of these weapons at any point in any time. Um, you know, at least the pistol to me seems, and, and the type of pistol that they sent him was actually used by a lot of police departments. <laughs> uh, so there you have that as well. I mean, it seems to me, and I'm not sure, I'm not so much sure that I'm sure it's used, still used by some cops today, but a lot of cops used to carry what they call burner guns. And these are guns that we would be planted on, uh, you know, suspects that, that maybe they killed that didn't actually have a weapon. And, you know, you know what I'm saying? Wanted to fix things up so everything looked nice. Yeah. He could say, oh, but he had a gun. He tried to shoot me. So I shot him first, you know, and, uh, you know, they have a couple of these guns that, that you know, that they carry with them and, uh, plant them on different people or, you know, or just playing them in general. If they wanted to, to frame somebody up to try to get information, you know, while they're shaking them down. Oh, look at this pistol we found in your back pocket here, you know, stuff like that. Um, so it's not out of the realm of possibility, at least, you know, for me, that some of these uh, live rounds that, that Oswald was carrying actually were in an ammo belt at some point in time 
which cops used. Uh, it was a type of gun that cops used, different from what uh, he had originally ordered, supposedly. So it's a big mess, Carmine. Both both weapons. Yeah, yeah, both the weapons I think definitely have deficient evidence, you know, backing up the assertions that are later made on them. And you know, that's I think the problem with a lot of the entire case is that because it was lower, the only reason the commission was able to have any behind its declarations was because there were lower legal standards and under criminal standards this case would have fallen apart too many mistakes were made by too many officials and now you know we've proven that suppression occurred and obstruction of justice occurred whether or not it has to do with covering up or whether or not it has to do with just uh you know the most idiotic series of mistakes added to people actually trying to cover up other illegal things they were doing Right. You know, when it comes to ordering the weapons, uh, obtaining the weapons after delivery, um, ammo for the weapons, um, you know, it, there's problems at every turn, you know, in chain yeah, of custody. Lack of practice. Yeah, it's lack of practicing with the weapons. There's no indication he ever shot with a, a handgun or a rifle anywhere. Um, yeah. Because it's not like, you know, he would have been proficient in the use of a handgun um there's no indication they they train you for that in the uh marine corps uh no no indication that you carried a pistol in the marine corps um and from whoever shot Tippett knew what the hell they were doing i mean they they shot him three times in the chest and once in the head after he was down so <laughs> uh that's coming from somebody who uh knows exactly what they're doing with a pistol, I would think. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I also think that people don't ever attribute to that, you know, besides all of the practice and everything, how about the lack of cold, you know, him being a cold-blooded killer? Oswald seemingly reverts from this, you know, he was politically outspoken, but when it came down to it, Oswald wasn't someone who got into fights. Oswald wasn't somebody who could just cold-bloodedly murder. And these are two very different things. You know, it's one thing to shoot from a distance when you think you're safe and you're hidden. And then it's another, as you just said, to get up close and to do cold-blooded murder just a couple of feet away. And I'm not convinced that Oswald necessarily was the person, kind of person that could have done both of those divergent things in so short a time as, you know, a span of time. Yeah, I'm not either. You know, going from somebody who liked to argue politics and, and discuss politics, uh, even with people that didn't agree with him, um, to jump from that to, like you said, you know, murder and not just murder execution. I mean, you know, it's, it's a giant leap for me. Yeah. And not to say that, yeah, if he was going to, uh, you know, people might say that it's spur of the moment, but if, if Oswald was going, let's say that just for a moment, which I think is a problem. I don't think is the case, but if he was the person that shot at president Kennedy, then, it's a lot different than go and just execute him, but he could have shot him in the legs. He could have shot him, you know, in a number of places other than just executing him. Yeah, well, I think you know, the three... this is a person that did not want to be identified, that needed to get away quickly, and was willing to murder someone. And I, like I said, I'm not convinced that it's the same, that Oswald was like that. Yeah, well, I think the three, th the three shots to the chest would have done it, but, you know, he was, you know, he walked around and shot one in the head to make sure. That's, you know, that's shit hitman dude, you know? Yeah. That's what they call the uh, the money shot. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, 
sure that the person, there's yeah. no chance that they survived. Yeah, and it's, you know, for that to for that to happen, I mean, I mean, yeah, there's no indication that Oswald was ever, you know, like that. I mean, if if he was, you know, and he supposedly carried this pistol on him, you know, he probably would have shot Bringier when he got up in his face in the street. But no, he just stood there and took it and yeah. was arrested. And, you know. Or, and if he had planned this out, he likely would have had the pistol with him. He wouldn't have wasted time and having a chance of encountering someone like Tippett to go back for the pistol. You know, and then you got, he doesn't ever try to escape. He just moves around downtown Dallas. Yeah, and you have... There were no initial roadblocks. The, the way was clear. There were train stations, there were cars, you could have stolen a car, any number of... Like, what I thought was crazy is, after he shot Tippett, why didn't he then take a police car? No one's going to check a police car for at least a little while with all the, you know, mayhem going on. He could have got out of town. Why didn't he do that? Yeah, why was he even going that way anyway on foot? He had a bus transfer he had in his pocket, supposedly. Uh... You know, he could have had a getaway car set up, which, if he was smart, he would have done and just got the hell out of there. But no, we have, all, you know, like you said, all these inconsistencies. Is, it's like the perfect storm to pin all this on Lee Oswald. Which, as we know, lines up with, and not to say, like I said, I don't think, I think it was a small group. It could have even been a rogue member or a former member, but a lot of this lines up with. The 1954 Guatemala documents when the agency wrote the handbook on assassination. There's supposed to be one guy, you know, one person that doesn't know about the rest of the organization, that only has one person keeping contact with him, and it's good if he's a political radical, you know, to give motivation to why he might have done these things, and then everything gets pinned on him. That's how you do a successful intelligence operation. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know that a lot of people wanted Kennedy dead. A lot of people talked about wanting Kennedy dead back then, but one person is all you would need to set up the hit, you know, to contact the other assassin and, you know, to make sure that they were the only ones that knew who, who it was, you know, like everybody that wanted him dead didn't necessarily have to know who it was that was killing him. True. And that's probably likely the case, you know, it's, it's going to be a small group and it's going to be a group that could have vanished and as for the assassins you know i wouldn't claim to know exactly how it happened but i would assume they died quickly after that whoever had set up the operation would want to eliminate them because chances are if they were allowed to live someone would either make them talk or they would talk yeah but you have to look at it like this too carmine if if the people they got to do this were badass enough to pull this off and do it. They knew the risk and they knew that that might happen. So these guys likely went, you know, either stone cold silent or disappeared or cause I know if I was hired to do that and I did it, then I would, I, I would make sure I got my money up front and I would disappear and you would never see me again. Because I would know that somebody's going to silence me because I know who hired me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's... And like you were saying even before, too, is that most people even associated... I mean, the people who could have funded such an action probably didn't have any concept of what the operation was, who was involved. They just sent the money to whatever account, and that was it. Yep, plausible you know, it deniability. It doesn't have to be the big elaborate thing that some people try to make it. Yeah. 
All right, buddy. Well, I appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this. I hope we enlighten some people today. And uh, yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to come on and talk to you, Rob. Hey, my pleasure. I love it when you come on here. People love it too. And uh, for more, head to neat is it neamg n e a m g dot com. Yep. And uh, to t com t p a a k dot com for the book. And head over to the uh, tlgpodcast.com where I'll post links to all the documents that we talked about today and that's it for this one people see you next week with Mr. Chuck O'Chelly is on the show that's it for this one I'm beaming this some bitch up the satellite down directly to your ears people this is your boy peace Stripping, a tear drops my eye. My body temperature falls. I'm shaking and they breaking, trying to save the dough. Pumping on my chest and I'm screaming. I stop breathing. Damn, I see demons. Dear God, I wonder can you save me? I can't die. My boo boo's about to have my baby. I think it's too late for praying. Hold up, her voice spoke to me and it slowly started saying, Bring your lifestyle to me, you make it better. And how long will I live? Eternal life and Oh, will I be the G that I was? I make it like better than you can imagine or even dream of. So relax yourself, let me take control. Close your eyes, my soul. My eyes are closed. Again, but anyway, I get funny some keys to get back on my feet. And everything that nigga said came to reality. Living like a baller low, I'm having money and blowing hella chronic smoke. I bought my mama a thing, my boo boo a jag, and now I'm rolling in the nitrous AL dough race. Just remember who changed your mind, cause when you start set tripping, that ass is mine. And then her great proceed to smoke weed. Never have a want, never have a need. They say I'm greedy, but I still want more Cause my eyes want a journey some more Fill it up, check it out Scraping on the floor 
niggas getting they shanks Just in case the war pops off Cause you can't tell what's next My little homie baby boo He took a pencil in his neck And he probably won't make it to C-22 I'll put that on my mama I'm gonna ride for you baby boo right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.